Endgame. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. It is number one thanks to you, by the way. Thanks so much. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at quorumreport.com and out sick today, not feeling well. Jeremy Wallace, he actually had uh, an adverse reaction and not nothing uh, you know, over the top terrible or anything, but he's not feeling well after his second shot of the coronavirus vaccine. He tweeted out a little bit earlier. I'll just share what you share what he said publicly. Uh, he said that it has really, um, uh, really punched him in a way that he didn't expect, uh, which has been common for a lot of people. He'll probably be better uh, next week, and we'll have him back here on the show. Hope he's feeling just fine by the time you hear this show. Maybe he'll be feeling better. That's my hope. The legislative session is coming to an end in Austin. Let me check the countdown clock right now at quorumreport.com, where you should be a subscriber. As I tape the show now, 10 days, 10 hours, 24 minutes, and 58 seconds left before the Texas Constitution says that the legislature has to conclude its business. They can actually stop before that. They don't have to go that long, but they have to stop coming up at the end of the month here and adjourn sine die. So what are they doing? They're doing what they always do. I saw a lot of headlines uh, over the last 24, 48 hours about how the House and Senate in Austin are at war with each other. And if you go back two years, go back four years, go back six years, go back eight years, go back 10 years, you would see similar headlines. This is always what happens. At the end of a legislative session, it's not about Republicans versus Democrats or liberals versus conservatives. It is all about House versus Senate. And what are they upset with each other about? Um, well, the substance of the pieces of legislation that are being either killed right now or passed right now, a lot of that is secondary to whether the bill is a House bill or a Senate bill. Yesterday, on the Texas House floor on Thursday, uh, there was a big show by members of the House, including the Speaker, by the way, uh, who were arguing that the Senate needs to get its act together and start passing those House bills. And of course, the Senate would say that the House needs to pass the Senate bills. It's just this sort of ridiculous back and forth. A lot of it has to do with who gets credit for passing what, because of course, all this is going to end up in campaigns later. Uh, so we'll watch this very closely. The House actually went ahead and took a weekend. I'm working today. The Texas House is not uh, on Friday. As we approach the end of the legislative session, if lawmakers later say, well, we didn't have time to pass this or that, just remember, come back and listen to this edition of the show. They took a long weekend. They'll come back on Sunday at one o'clock. So we'll watch that closely. Um, Governor Abbott is assuring lawmakers that they are going to get to weigh in on how billions of dollars in federal funding is spent uh, in a special session later this year, in the fall. As we have told you here previously on the show, there's going to be a special session of the legislature this year. The question is when. Um, there could be an immediate special session if things fall apart. For example, the Texas budget. It is the only thing that lawmakers have to pass. The only bill that they absolutely have to put on the governor's desk by law, by the Constitution, is the budget. And earlier this week, I had thought there couldn't be any holdup with the budget. Everything should be fine. Lawmakers here have plenty of money. Plenty of money. Why? Uh, well, in the last year, we saw the economy tank, and we thought that the budget would be a real challenge. 
but it hasn't been for a couple of reasons. Um, over the last six to eight months or so, the economy has really snapped back. And it may not feel like it for you because I know there are a lot of people who are still suffering because of the economic fallout from the coronavirus uh, pandemic, which we're still in. We're coming out of that as the uh, vaccine distribution gets more even and all of that. Um, but not only are we seeing a better economy, but we're getting billions of dollars in federal aid, just like every other state. And there is a debate about who should be in charge of what happens with that money. You can guess that Governor Abbott would like it to be him. He would like to make all the decisions unilaterally. He doesn't want the lawmakers have to have to weigh in on that. The House and Senate who are fighting with each other now, as I mentioned, he doesn't want them to have to worry about that. At least that's what I believe based on what has happened here. Uh, the uh, conference committee on the budget and the conference committee, I'll explain what that is. It's almost like uh, schoolhouse rock here. How does a bill become a law? Well, you know, the House passes a version of the bill, Senate passes a version of the bill, and those versions are different. So then they have to hash out their differences. They do that behind closed doors in what's called a conference committee. And it's a group of five or six or however many House members or five or six uh, senators. And they go into a closed room and they rewrite everything that had been debated in public, then in private, they rewrite it all. Then that piece of legislation, once it's all wrapped up with a bow, they take it back out in public and they vote up or down on it. So it only needs a simple majority to pass the House and Senate now and go on to the governor's desk. Uh, the House had an impassioned debate earlier in the session about who should be in charge of all that money. We're talking about $16 billion that was sent to Texas. It's coming here for all kinds of needs. And the governor over the last year, when the legislature was not in session, he was making a bunch of those decisions on his, on his own. Seems like he would like to continue to do that. In the conference committee report, um, the language that had been unanimously approved by the Texas House to have a special session of the legislature to make these decisions, well, that language was taken out. Why was it taken out? Well, a column right now at quorumreport.com written by our publisher, Harvey Kronberg, the headline is this. Did the Budget Conference Committee, the Speaker and the Governor, sucker punch the House? And Mr. Kronberg's making the argument that the Speaker of the House and the Governor and the Senate basically said to most of the House members who want to have some say in how this money gets spent, basically that those who were in the private room just sucker punched the rest of the lawmakers, basically screwed them over. I said, you know, what you, what you approve unanimously, forget about that. Uh, the governor can make these decisions on his own. But then after that information came to light, the governor started to assure lawmakers that, no, you will get a say on this during a special session later this year in the fall. His office sent an email that we first reported at quorumreport.com. Um, they sent an email to lawmakers saying, look, go ahead and pass the budget as it is. And you will get a chance to weigh in on this federal money later in the year when there's a special session. Whether or not the budget passes will depend on whether these lawmakers trust Governor Abbott. And I read from the column at quorumreport.com by Mr. Kronberg, quote, Abbott's pledge of adding legislative oversight to a fall special session should perhaps be viewed in light of his past broken promises to Texas House members and the retribution faced by lawmakers who challenge his authority. In the past, the governor has not kept his promises to lawmakers. I'll give you the example. In his first session as governor in 2015, Abbott assured lawmakers that he would have their backs in Republican primaries. He would support them 
if they were challenged by Tea Party lawmakers, if they got right-wing challengers, because there was all this backlash at the time to his pre-K initiative. He wanted to put more money into pre-kindergarten initiatives, and you can't make this stuff up. There were Republican activists who said that the pre-kindergarten initiative, the idea that four- and five-year-olds would be getting education, that that was, quote, godless socialism. So, of course, the Republican members were nervous about that. Abbott said, look, don't worry about it. Stick with me. Vote for my initiative and I'll have your back. Well, there were a lot of Republican challenges in that next year, and Abbott wasn't there for any of them. He didn't do anything for the Republican lawmakers, so he broke that promise. And then in a subsequent legislative session, there were lawmakers who challenged his authority and actually tried to add some more ethical guidelines to the way that Abbott appoints his, um, you know, appointees to boards and commissions. Um, basically, lawmakers wanted to see, at least some of them did, some Republicans, wanted to ensure that his big political contributors could not serve on boards and commissions that the governor chooses, that, that he makes those appointments. Um, and after that, Abbott went after those people in their Republican primaries. So basically, he gives them no shelter in the storm and he attacks them. Uh, when they go against him, right? So that's his history. We'll see how this plays out. We'll watch it carefully. Um, but a lot of this is going to depend, the end game here for the legislative session, a lot of it depends on the red meat issues we've talked to you about here on the show. There have been so many fights about transgender children that it's a little tiresome. It's very tiresome to me. This keeps coming up. And when we talk about the transgender community, we are talking about, this number isn't exact, I don't have the data on this, but when we talk about transgender people, we're talking about 0.0002% of the population, something like that. It's a very small minority, and misunderstood minority, and they don't have a lot of political clout, so they don't have a lot of votes, right? And that makes them easy to beat up on. Well, that's certainly happening in the Texas legislature, whether it was a specific piece of legislation or an amendment that was offered by a right-wing legislator to try to ban transgender people from this or that. We've heard about it all of the legislative session for about five months now as we close in on the end. Um, and some of this is being done for show in Republican primaries. Some of it's being done um, because there are some folks who genuinely do believe that this is an issue that the state needs to address. Business groups are not in favor of this. Uh, more moderate Republicans are not in favor of this. And of course, Democrats are disgusted by this whole uh, discussion. The Texas Senate this week passed a ban on what's called gender-affirming medical care for transgender kids. I'll tell you what this bill does. And you remember, there is another bill dealing with transgender folks that could end up in Texas law. It could get passed. We'll see over the next week that has to do with youth in sports in our high schools, that uh, transgender kids would not be able to play on the on the boys or girls team of their choice. So we'll see what happens with that. The bill I'm about to tell you about is probably dead, although nothing's dead until Sonny die. Just keep that in mind. Under this proposed legislation, the Texas Medical Board would put a doctor out of business, take their license away from them, if they, quote, prescribe or perform gender transitioning or gender assignment medical procedures or treatments to children, including surgeries, puberty-blocking drugs, and cross-sex hormones. Sounds like a lot of medical stuff. So, of course, it turned into a church sermon in the Texas Senate. It, it, it sounded like um, they were having uh, Sunday school followed by church on the floor of the Senate. What do I mean? Well, they talked a lot about God. 
Let me give you the examples. Kelly Hancock and Bob Hall are conservative Republican senators from North Texas. Uh, Hancock is from the Fort Worth area, and Bob Hall, uh, his district includes some of Dallas County into East Texas. Very conservative guys. Senator Hancock told the guy pushing the bill, Senator Hall, that what this is really all about is honoring God's creation. Senator Hall, I too believe in a man of God and believe that God does love them just the way they are and just the way that he created them to be. And that man should not go and change that. Um, that that's, was God. God created man, woman, as we are. And the most important thing to understand is that we are loved in that way as he made us. And that is how he desires for us to understand him and accept him as him being God and not man or any other individual determining, changing what he created. And so I think it is important to understand God's love and Christ's love for all. And we are all in the same boat in that we're all fell. We're all sinners. But he created us. And he did not make a mistake when he created us. And therefore his love is shared among those just as he created us. And I think that's what this bill uh, seeks to, to recognize. Senator Hall agreed. I, too, am a Christian, and this is not about a lack of love. This is being done with love. And I agree with what you said. God created these children, and we're talking about young children. We're not talking about adults. We're about young children. And what God created for man to then cut out of their bodies before, when as children is a disrespect to God in what he created. Now, Democratic Fort Worth Senator Beverly Powell was bothered by this religious discussion. She said the fact that they're using the you know, the Bible and God to try to justify this is really troubling to her. I, I'm concerned, and I don't want to let this go without saying that transgender people will hear this argument and will conclude there is no place for them in the church, or worse, that God doesn't love them exactly as they are. I'm a person of faith, and in fact, I am a person of the Christian faith. I, I do not oppose this legislation in spite of my faith. I oppose it because of my faith. I share the view of Reverend Coetzee, a Presbyterian minister from San Antonio, who says in a quote, transgender children are not a threat to God, nor to our society or to you. In fact, we can learn a lot from them as they embody the costly act of cultivating and expressing the person that God created us to be. What is this really all about, this discussion of transgender children? Well, what I have heard is that there are uh, definitely some polls out in the field right now and some polls that have been done by Republican campaigns, Republican candidates, and this is the way they ask the question in the poll. And and. I did have some folks who uh, got the call from pollsters tell me that the question sounded something like this. Are you in favor of the state banning the practice of mutilating children? Well, if that's the question, then almost everyone will say yes. This was sort of like the bathroom bill in 2017. You remember this big fight. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick was on a tear. Uh, he wanted to ensure that men were not going into women's rooms dressed as women to attack women. 
which he couldn't point to any examples of that happening. But if you ask the question, should men be in women's rooms? Of course, everybody says, no, men should not be in women's rooms, it, whether that's happening or not. It, it, you see, it's a, it's, manufa- ma- just, it's manufactured outrage. It's made up. So this is going to show up in campaigns. Whether these bills pass or not, and in fact, you can bet on this, if these bills don't pass, the transgender sports ban or this, uh, this other bill that was debated in the Senate this week, if they don't pass, it'll be even more prominent in Republican campaigns. I'll give you the example of that. Here's Governor Greg Abbott's Republican challenger, Don Huffines, who has already announced that he's running against Abbott in the GOP primary next year, and he's already staking his campaign on this issue. As governor, I will end the barbaric practice of these abusive therapies on two-year-olds and the mutilation of Texas children will come to an end. We're out of time. No more excuses. The mutilation of Texas children is going to come to an end. It, there, there, let's just be clear here. There is no evidence that children are being mutilated all over the place. But if, if all you heard was this debate and you heard that advertisement, you might think that it was happening everywhere, that that's really going on. So these folks are attacking Abbott, and they're going to attack the Republican members of the legislature. Incumbent protection time. That's what's happening right now as we wrap up the legislative session. So what are the Republicans going to defend themselves with? How will they prove to people that they're the ones who are the most conservative candidates in the race and not their challengers, whether that be Governor Abbott or any of the Texas House or Texas Senate members? Well, the first thing that they're going to defend themselves with is the fact that Governor Abbott this week signed one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. This is the six-week ban on abortion, what supporters call the fetal heartbeat bill. Abbott signed the bill in uh, his reception room in the Texas Capitol, which usually when he would do something like this, he would have reporters come in and he would uh, you know, sign the bill and then we could ask questions. You may have seen Florida Governor Ron DeSantis recently signed a bill with only Fox News present, which makes sense. That's the preferred mode of uh, communication for a lot of Republican office holders. Abbott didn't even have Fox News there, and he didn't have any journalists from Texas either. He was surrounded by lawmakers, the vast majority of them Republicans. I think they had one Democrat, Senator Eddie Lucio from Brownsville, so that Abbott and others can say that this is bipartisan which is really sort of a scam. Anytime that they say it's bipartisan, but there's only one member of the minority party who has signed on to the thing, it's not really bipartisan. And I would say that if the uh, parties were reversed, if it was mostly, if it was almost all Democrats who had uh, pushed something and only one Republican was on board with it, I wouldn't call it bipartisan. They would, I would not. Here's Abbott making the announcement that he is signing the fetal heartbeat law. Our creator endowed us with the right to life, and yet millions of children lose their right to life every year because of abortion. In Texas, we work to save those lives. And that's exactly what the Texas legislature did this session. They worked together on a bipartisan basis to pass a bill that I'm about to sign that ensures that the life of every unborn child who has a heartbeat will be saved from the ravages of abortion. 
This law in Texas is much different from laws that have been passed that are sort of similar or at least similarly marketed, I should say it that way, in other states. Uh, in Mississippi, for example, they passed a six-week uh, abortion ban, which is going to head to the United States Supreme Court, and this has been said to be a direct challenge to the court precedent set by Roe versus Wade. We'll see how that turns out. The thing that makes this different from what they have in Mississippi, where they just outright banned abortion, made it illegal at six weeks. We're talking about civil actions, and we've talked about this here on the podcast. Um, this is not going to be enforced, so to speak, by the government. Instead, it's going to be enforced by your fellow Texans. So the way this bill is written, it's creating a cause of action. It's giving people a reason to sue over something. You can, you can run to the courthouse, and I, when I say you, I mean you, everybody listening. If you would choose to be this kind of busybody, you could enforce the new Texas law on abortion yourself. If you live in Travis County, where I live, um, and someone has an abortion in Harris County, where Houston is, and you believe, you have some reason to think that it was in violation of the six-week ban and that a fetal heartbeat could be detected, it would be up to you, and you could go ahead and sue the doctor, the abortion provider, in Houston. Or if one happened in Dallas, you could do it to any any other county. It doesn't matter. Or you could do it uh, in your home county uh, if there was an abortion that happened in your home county that you didn't approve of. So all Texans now are in charge of enforcing this thing. And it's not just the abortion provider who could be sued over it and the person suing could collect damages, which, again, this is Republicans creating a cause of action. Not just the doctor. It's also anybody who, quote, aided and abetted the abortion. So if someone drove a woman to the clinic, that person could be sued as well. If a woman said she wanted to get an abortion or that she needed an abortion, however she, however she phrased it, if a friend of hers, uh, this is the way I read it, and, and some lawyers are going to tell me maybe that I'm wrong, but, but the way I read the bill was if a woman asks a friend for information on abortion and the friend looks it up on their cell phone, the person who looked it up on the cell phone could be sued as well. Anyone who helped the woman at any point along the way of getting the abortion could be uh, slapped with a lawsuit over this. This is going to create a real mess in the courts. I have heard privately from some Republicans that they can't believe that the GOP in Texas, which has been dedicated for 35, 40 years to tort reform. Uh, I'm old enough to remember uh, the fights over medical malpractice uh, tort reform capping damages and making it harder for people to sue doctors. That has been a Republican cause for many years. This law does the opposite. It opens up the courthouse doors for people who want to sue doctors over abortion. So we'll track how this plays out. It has been signed by the governor and it takes effect later this year. You can expect lawsuits uh, as it goes into effect. There could be a breakthrough on another one of these red meat issues, which is the permitless carry of handguns what the supporters call constitutional carry, but not before a big throwdown within the GOP. First, the possible breakthrough is that Matt Schaefer, who is the author of the bill, uh, to let people basically carry a handgun almost anywhere they want with no license. There are some exceptions, but almost anywhere. Um, and it was changed significantly by the Senate. But Schaefer said on Twitter yesterday that uh, we should all stand by for some exciting Second Amendment news probably means there has been a deal cut between the House and the Senate on this. So we'll stay tuned for that. By the time you hear the show, maybe the deal will have been announced. Um, 
but look at this. I was looking at the headlines. The Republican Party of Texas chairman, Alan West, and this happened right after the show last week, so we didn't get to talk about it, but I want to bring it up because this also shows you what kind of uh, intra-party uh, fighting is going to happen with the Republicans. The chairman, Mr. West, I should say Lieutenant Colonel West, attacked Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick over the issue of constitutional carry, and West said that Patrick is to blame for all of this being slowed down. Colonel West says that Governor Abbott should have signed this already, basically. Listen to who the GOP chairman also gives credit to while he's attacking Dan Patrick. In spite of the poison pill amendments that were added to House Bill 1927 by Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and the Texas Senate, House leadership appears to have struck a deal with House Democrats last night to keep them from killing the bill on a technicality. You heard me right. House Democrats saved the pro-gun constitutional carry bill that Dan Patrick and Senate Republicans had tried to kill. The idea that Alan West would thank Texas House Democrats is the reason I get up in the morning. <laughs> the, the fact is um, that you never know where things are going to go in Texas politics. Uh, the, the, one of the most conservative activists in the state, chairman of the RPT, saying that House leadership got together with the Democrats, including a bunch of liberals, and saved the constitutional carry bill while he's attacking one of the most conservative leaders in the state, Dan Patrick. He said this would have easily passed, if not for Patrick. And let's be clear, if it weren't for Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick's poison pill amendments, this bill, House Bill 1927, would already be on the way to Governor Abbott's desk instead of having to go to a conference committee. Now, more than ever, we need Dan Patrick and the Senate Republicans to show that they support Texans and our constitutional right so constitutional carry can get across the finish line. Here's something else I had not seen previously. The operation uh, of Patrick, his political operation, they immediately lashed out at Colonel West saying that he was, quote, clueless. And they asked whether or not he was running for something uh, else whether or not West, and they're hinting at all the rumors that West might actually run for governor or run for lieutenant governor for some higher office. I did note with some irony that Governor Patrick's spokesman, uh, Alan Blakemore, and his senior advisor, Sherry Sylvester, they were calling this guy out for being clueless and, and questioning whether he was running for higher office it's almost as if they've never heard of someone from another state, which West is and Patrick is, coming in and telling the Republican uh, office holders in Texas they're not conservative enough, which Patrick has done all the time and West is doing all the time, and that this guy might run for higher office, which, of course, Patrick did, and now West might do. Watch this space. We'll see what happens with the permitless carry bill and with Colonel West's political future. Speaking of... The Republican primary, which we have been doing at length here. Remember when Jeremy on the show said he did not expect that it would be George P. Bush to come out and so brutally attack the Attorney General, Ken Paxton? Bush, on the Mark Davis show in Dallas on 660 AM, The Answer, with my friend Mark Davis, Bush had said that he was looking at challenging uh, Paxton in the Republican primary because of his personal indiscretions. There's been a lot of reporting 
over the last five, six years about the legal issues of Ken Paxton. Paxton's accused of securities fraud here at the state level, and he may even face some federal charges after more recent allegations were made a few months ago by some of his top staffers in his office who subsequently quit working for the attorney general's office. And um, these are not liberals. This is not the liberal deep state that's out to get Ken Paxton. Of course, Paxton has a big national profile like an attorney general of Texas should. He is the guy who led the charge in the multi-state lawsuit to try to overturn the election results in favor of President Trump and has often been thought of what I mean, he, he's been somebody who is one of Trump's guys in Texas. Although it's interesting in his reelection bid, Lieutenant Governor Patrick has the endorsement of former President Trump already. Paxton does not. So watch that. We'll see what happens with it. Um, Paxton was not happy with the fact that George P. Bush had attacked him. And Paxton, and I'll give, again, my friend Mark Davis, I give him credit because I guess they're just going to run the whole campaign on his show. Bush was on <laughs> was on Davis' show, Paxton on Davis' show. And Mark asked Paxton if he had any prior indication that Bush was going to be coming at him so hard and potentially challenging him in next year's primary. No, he didn't tell. He was going to go after Dan Patrick. And I think what happened was, you know, he's kind of got this mentality that he's going to be president someday. He's got to get started. So wow. he's, he's a, I'm, that's it. I mean, wow. so he, he, I know for a fact that he's told people that he was going to either run for governor, lieutenant governor, and, or against me. And initially he didn't think he had enough money to run against Abbott. So he thought he could run against Patrick, but Patrick has about 20 million in the bank and I don't have that much money. So I got picked, I think largely because I don't have as much money and he thought he could raise Sufficient money to at least, you know, be competitive on the on the on the funding side. But until like December of last year, everybody told me, and he was saying he's running for lieutenant governor because it, it's his time, and he hates being land commissioner. Hates being land commissioner. I thought the most interesting part of that answer from Paxton was that Paxton said that he himself did not have much money in the bank for a campaign. Uh, when I look back at Paxton's reports, of uh, the, the most recent ones, he does have some cash there. But I was reminded by some astute political observers that uh, Paxton gave a large loan to his wife for her campaign for state Senate, uh, Angela Paxton, who represents uh, Collin County in the Texas Senate. And, of course, she has not paid that back. At least that hasn't been reported that she had paid it back. So some of the point being some of the money that Paxton uh, reports to have in his campaign account you know, it's collateralized. He can't, he can't actually spend it. So that, that's a problem for him. And I think he has some campaign debt from years ago. And I'm not sure that he's going to get the same kind of uh, campaign uh, contributors and the same kind of uh, the same level of campaign finances uh, that he got when he first won the office back in 2014. Some sharp listeners will remember that a group called Empower Texans collateralized a million-dollar loan for Paxton in that first race when he was in a runoff with former Republican uh, state representative Dan Branch from Dallas. It was it was Paxton and Branch in that runoff. Uh, who was the other guy running? I think it was uh, Barry Smitherman. He was a former railroad commissioner. Uh, and Paxton was able to win in that race. But he had you know an injection of some big money from these third-party groups, and he had the intensity of the grassroots. I'm not sure, and that this is an open question, I'm not sure that Paxton still enjoys an intense following with the Republican grassroots. I think that other Republicans are smelling blood in the water with Paxton. 
because of the most recent allegations, which include bribery and misuse of office and some accusation that he did have a mistress, was cheating on his wife with someone else. I mean, that's all been in the newspaper. Um, you don't hear Mark Davis ask about that specifically, but he did ask him about his personal legal issues, and here's what Paxton had to say about that. Nothing I can do about it, Mark. They, they were able to move my case out of my county to Harris County and to Democratic courts. So far, every court has ruled in my favor that it needs to be moved back to Collin County, where I'm supposed to have the opportunity to be tried in front of a, a, a you know my peers. But the reality is, they don't have any. They've never had a. They don't have anybody to testify against me. They still haven't found anybody, and so the case just sits there in the, the appellate courts for six years. It's been there for almost six years. So this idea of a speedy trial that's you know you're supposed to have under the Constitution, it's not happening because I mean. They don't have a case. So if they had a case, it wouldn't take six years. So this is all political. Um, and George P. is political. And that's all this is about. He's not going to run against me on the issues because he's not competent to do the job. He just, I think he just got his law license back, has really no experience in practicing law. And his experience is as a land commissioner. And, and that hasn't gone so well with the Alamo um, and with his uh, trying to get money down to the uh, to Houston area for FEMA funding. So he, he hasn't even proved himself in that, let alone a job like this that takes a lot of legal ability, which he has none of. That's interesting spin from Paxton to say that if they had a case, this would have gone to court already. Paxton's own lawyers have worked diligently. They've worked overtime for years and years to ensure that that original criminal case against him never goes to trial. Why would they do that? Well, on the civil side of things, Paxton did, years ago, admit to what is accused, what's alleged in the criminal trial, which is that he was rounding up investors for a company without telling the investors he was being paid by that company to find money for the company. You can see why Texas law would require you to do that. If you are somebody who is actively trying to get people to write checks and make investments in a company, buy securities, you know, to buy stock in a company. If you're a guy rounding people up to be investors and you're being paid by the company to do so, it's just a transparency thing. The people who you're asking for money should know that you're being paid by the company to get their money. It just makes sense. Paxton, when he was a member of the Texas House years ago, he voted in favor of making it illegal to do what he did later. Okay, so that's what's happening with that. The other accusations against him are pending. Let's put it that way. We'll see what happens. The AP did report that the FBI is looking into him. I do think that one thing Paxton said is correct, that this probably won't be about issues. And we played the audio previously of Commissioner Bush when he was attacking Paxton. But even Bush said, look, Paxton's a conservative. There's no daylight between us on being conservatives. And there's no daylight between us on being Trump supporters. Bush, whose family has been trashed up one side and down the other by President Trump, former President Trump, he supports President Trump. He said he would support him. But Bush said he would support Trump in 2024 if he runs for president again. He's all in for Trump. Bush said, and you heard this right here on the podcast, Bush said that U.S. House Republicans were right to get rid of Liz Cheney as one of their leadership team because she has spoken truth to power about President Trump's big lie. Trump continues to tell people that he was cheated out of the election 
and Liz Cheney, a staunch conservative daughter of Dick Cheney, the former vice president, Cheney has said that this is a test of the Republican Party. And it's a test of our country and our democracy and whether it still works. She says it does still work. And Trump supporters act like it doesn't because they think he got cheated. There's still an audit going on in Arizona. And it's a really bizarre deal, an audit of the election in Arizona ordered by the state Senate there that's being conducted by some company with a checkered past. You can read about that in other publications. Um, But there's no indication that it's a real honest effort. One of the things that the auditors are looking for, this is amazing. Again, you can't make this stuff up. One of the things that the auditors are looking for with the ballots was whether there was any evidence that the paper contained that the paper ballots, whether they contain bamboo, because they may have come from China. All right. This is the kind of thing they're looking into in Arizona. This is what they're clinging to. And President uh, Trump, the former president, is still acting as if this audit in Arizona is just going to be the first domino to fall to prove to all of us that he really did win the election. George Bush agrees with Trump. He has said he supports President Trump. Now, he sort of tacitly said he doesn't really agree with the big lie, and he acknowledges that Joe Biden is the president. But it's May of 2021. Everyone should just acknowledge that that election is over with. We can move on to the next one. But the Republican Party's base is in the grasp of President Trump. And what's going to happen in a race like this between Bush and Paxton, if Bush really makes the jump, I think he said that he has a campaign kickoff rally coming up in June. Bush's campaign didn't specify whether it was for re-election to land commissioner or for uh, attorney general to challenge Paxton. But it looks like they're moving in the direction of a Paxton challenge. (sighs) This is going to be about personalities and uh, personal accusations and integrity and all of that. And this is what always happens when candidates don't have any difference between them on the issues. This was the same thing that happened back in 2012. I'll give you a good example. In 2012, when Lieutenant Governor David Dewhurst at the time was being challenged by Ted Cruz for the U.S. Senate. And in that race, they were both running for an open seat, but the Lieutenant Governor sort of runs as the incumbent because he's run statewide before and everybody knows his name and all of that. Cruz was the upstart. People didn't know who this guy was. He was the solicitor general previously in Texas. And if you went out on the street right now and asked six people, who, what does the solicitor general do? Most people wouldn't know. And they certainly wouldn't know what they would know who it is. Nobody knew who Ted Cruz was before 2011, 2012, something like that. Uh, in Austin, they knew who he was, but voters didn't know who he was. Um, that race was so nasty all these personal accusations and personal attacks throughout the race because the candidates didn't disagree about the issues. And you'll see this across political races. Anytime the can and this happens in primaries mostly, almost exclusively, that it's all about the mudslinging. Not that that doesn't happen in general elections too. Um, but if they don't disagree about issues, they don't have anything else to argue about, right? Other than saying things like, I'm a good guy and he's a bad guy. That's what the argument comes down to, because we agree about everything. We agree about abortion. We agree about gun rights. We agree about uh, being uh, pro-God, pro-gun, anti-Obama, and all of that. But this other guy has all these accusations against him, that he had an affair, 
and that he was uh, misusing his office and that he was taking bribes or whatever else. It becomes that sort of a race rather than anything about public policy and what's good for Texas moving forward. Bottom line is I think we're in for a very, very nasty primary season, and we'll be here for it. Uh, Jeremy will be back next week. That's my expectation. I have heard from a lot of people that that second shot is just terrible. Um, and I didn't experience that. I get maybe as a 40 year old man, I'm, um, in the sweet spot with my immune system because I never experienced anything, um, that even felt like a coronavirus symptom over the entire last year during the entire pandemic. And I did have to travel some for work. I, I traveled the state late last year to Houston, Dallas, and places in between to cover campaigns. Remember, Democrats were not campaigning in person, but Republicans were. So I had to go cover that stuff. I did all the protocols. I would wear the mask and socially distance and everything like that. But I never got sick. Now, I might have been an asymptomatic carrier. That's possible. I never tested positive for coronavirus or any of that. But when I got the vaccine, it was... Um, not a big deal. I, the first shot, I got it, and it, I felt a little bit of soreness. And it wasn't enough to really complain about, just enough to notice it. The second shot, it was like somebody had punched me in the arm. Like a very large man, a muscled-up dude, had beaten me up, but just on my arm. Uh, it was the day I got the shot and the very next day. And then the next the next day, I got the shot on a Sunday... By Monday, I felt a little achy, took a couple of a leave, was good to go. Never got fever, chills, anything like that. So um, didn't get the disease, didn't have much effect from the vaccine. I'm now fully vaccinated, and Jeremy will be as well soon. If you enjoy the show, you must, because you put up with me for 40 minutes here. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can give us uh, the best rating that you can. We would appreciate it. Subscribe to QuorumReport.com, HoustonChronicle.com, and we will see you next week as we head toward the end of this legislative session. Mm -hmm.